last thing he said? What was the last thing she said? That is jemba. That is recollection. That is sati. That is mindfulness. And so I hope then it's even more obvious how that is different from the MBSR secular approach mindfulness movement, which is a simple moment-to-moment non-judgmental awareness. There's nothing to bear in mind except being aware. Again, it's marvelous to be aware, but if there's nothing to recollect, now one could make the argument that there's an instruction to bear in mind moment-to-moment awareness of whatever comes up, and that's the instruction you're bearing in mind. Not to get too technical, but I think it's important to say that the reason that's not a shamatha instruction is because the attention is not selective. And one of the key points of what will lead on a path of shamatha, a path of training the attention through recollection and introspection, through a path of nine stages to this moment when the coarse mind dissolves into the subtle mind, as Alan began to describe this morning, whether one refers to it as the ground of becoming, the bhavanga, or the substrate and the substrate consciousness, uh, in order for that coarse mind to be able to dissolve, it has to have been single-pointed. And that means deliberately cutting out the objects of the other five senses, because one can only reach this kind of a dissolution of coarse consciousness into subtle consciousness on the basis of training the mental awareness. So if it's moment to moment, bear attention on whatever arises, then we all know if our senses are open, they'll keep getting dispersed. And if one's paying attention to each new thought that arises and paying attention to it, attention will be dispersed. So it is a practice, and one may be bearing it in mind in instruction, but it's not a shamatha practice because it will not lead to this channeling of all the energies of the mind into a single stream, which eventually, over a path that may take months, may take years, may take decades, at which the refinement of attention and awareness is so delicate and all the static and noise that would scatter the attention is no longer even coming up. And then consciousness drops to its subtler layer. Uh, So that's just more reasoning why the definition of mindfulness matters depending on what one's goals are. And so if one wants to seek the nature of subtle consciousness and then eventually very subtle consciousness, um, we need a technology, a tool, an instruction, a training that is suited to that task. And if that's not one's goal, then another instruction may be fine. And there have been a couple of questions about, please uh, clarify these these distinctions between substrate, substrate consciousness. Um, Actually, it's on top here. Uh, The primordial ground, primordial consciousness, and pristine awareness.
think the most direct way to try to encapsulate this all in a brief time, and I do intend to be very brief with this, <clears throat> is in terms of subtlety. So coarse mind is coarse because it's bombarded. It's bombarded by sensory impressions, it's bombarded by mental content, primarily conceptual content, thoughts, images, reasonings, language, and so on. None of that's bad. It's just a lot of static. There's a lot of, you get the point. And someone asked, why do we have that? Well, that's the whole question of samsara. Why do we have ignorance? Why do we have karmic seeds? Why do we have our situation? It's a proliferation. And this is a word that Alan has used many times to translate a very specific term in the revelations of Dujom Lingba. It's a proliferation based on a fundamental mistake. So this process of shamatha is the first step to refining and streamlining consciousness to the point that we can see what was always there but was too subtle to see before. And that's why analogies of a microscope or a telescope are apt in this case because we're, using, we're developing tools that enable us to see something that was always there but we couldn't see before. So this subtle continuum of mental consciousness uh, and that is actually a direct translation of a Tibetan term as well, to call it the subtle continuum mental consciousness. By different terminology, it could be called the substrate consciousness. And that is conscious of something, which is a relative ground, a relative ground of our individual cycle of existence each of our individual cycles of existence, our samsaras, if you will. And so when the distinction is made between substrate and substrate consciousness, it's simply the distinction between that which is known and that which knows at a certain level of subtlety. It's not an ultimate layer of subtlety, but it's a relative layer, layer of subtlety. And the bhavanga, we have reason to believe experientially, is most likely referring to the same thing as the substrate this ground of becoming, but becoming in the relative sense, in the samsaric sense. And that is replete, that is chock full of karmic propensities. And that's why even in the dream, in going from dreamless sleep to the dream state, it pops out in a complex array of images and stories we call a dream, or it pops out in a new lifetime of full-on experience. And the reason that Alan referred to that as not religious, not spiritual, just something we can observe if we had the right technology, is because, as I say, it's relative, it's also individual. So again, this is addressing a different question, but I'm, I'm glad to try to get them, get them all at once. Um, we are, we do all have individual substrate consciousnesses, because it's a stream, and that's why I do really like the term uh, subtles continuum of mental consciousness. That, that's uh, a term used especially by Tsongkhapa and, and the Gilu tradition. Um, so each one of us has this stream. We, you might even say that's what makes us individual, is that particular stream. It's a causal continuum, and it, therefore it is a karmic continuum that holds all the imprints of everything we've ever done, and then that perpetuates 
uh, new experiences and new responses to those experiences. What makes a drastically different uh, realization, penetration, is when the meditator's consciousness can break through even that subtle level and go to the very subtle level. And again, it's terminology, subtle to very subtle, but that means something to us. We know that very means something different from not having a very. So the very subtle consciousness is also always there, always present. Same things I said, we just, it's too subtle to see, even with the simple mind of shamatha. There's something still veiling the basic mind that has achieved shamatha, if, it hasn't, if it's not yet practiced vipassana or insight. And insight in a, the very specific sense of insight into the emptiness of I, of me. And I can't begin to go into the range of what those practices entail, but the razor-sharp edge of that kind of analysis on the basis of the stability of a mind of shamatha that can rest in the relative ground of substrate consciousness and the substrate, then can penetrate through the veil of ignorance, which is actually what's making up the substrate and the substrate consciousness. Uh, it's said that it is of the nature of ignorance. So even though it's bright, luminous, blissful, and I will add, because it's the very th next thing in the notes, if uh, Lama Allen had had another day, that's where he would have continued. It's of the nature of loving kindness. So that will relate directly to our uh, main topic for the afternoon. But even that is of the nature of unawareness, of not knowing, of ignorance about the true nature of reality. And somehow it's that ignorance that makes us grasp to ourselves in a certain way. But when one can cut through that, that's the, the, the doorway, and literally the term is cutting through, to the ultimate ground, which completely transcends the extremes of one or many, of coming or going, of starting or stopping, even of existing or not existing. And I'll leave that as, as a koan for now. But it can no longer be said whether there's one or many of the ultimate ground. It doesn't make sense anymore. So something about the individuation of our streams of karmic causation, it seems has to do with our misknowing of the ground. But I'm also not saying that once everyone's enlightened, then it's all a big blob of a single Buddha. That's very uncomfortable. Um, it's, a, it's a conundrum within, within Buddhism, but it's one of those that has to remain. Because the nature of all Buddhas is one, but if you say, what, what's the continuum of this person as a Buddha? And what's the continuum of this person as a Buddha? You don't say they became the same Buddha. It's, that's, that's a no-no, shall we say, on, on a Tibetan Buddhist debate ground. So the primordial ground, one could say, is ultimate reality, the actual nature of reality. And the consciousness that knows it is primordial consciousness. It is the consciousness that understands emptiness uh, in the profound philosophical sense, not in the holistic sense in any, in any way. 
And within the context of Dzogchen teachings, primordial consciousness and pristine awareness are synonyms. But I say within the context of Dzogchen teachings because primordial consciousness translates yeshe, uh, which actually still has a range of meanings depending on its context within, within the Tibetan language and Tibetan Buddhism in general. So for now, I'll just say um, primordial consciousness, pristine awareness are diff emphasizing different aspects of what is this very subtle state of mind. And this very subtle state of mind actualized, not unknown. So this too is a conundrum. What does it mean to say there's a very subtle layer of awareness that's always been aware, but I'm not aware of it? <laughs> does that make me too? Uh, and this leads back to another question about the very distinction of I and my mind. Why, how can we even say, I need to be gentle toward my mind? I need to watch my mind. Who is that I? And asking that very question is the doorway to breaking through to primordial consciousness. And I'll just leave it there for now. It is a conundrum. Let it be a conundrum. Uh, relatively speaking, we can recognize that the range of referent of the word I is bigger than just my mind, because this isn't my mind. So, but I call this my hand. So if I were synonymous with my mind, then I'd have to say mind's hand. But when we use the word I, we still know that something a little bit, the, the umbrella is bigger than any particular part of me, and so we can speak of my mind as a part of me. But if we try to analyze that, we'll see there are holes in that too. And that's the doorway to Vipassana, which we won't do now. <laughs> uh, okay, time to meditate. And this will be a full session, 24 minutes. So as soon as you begin to hear words that sound like instructions, begin to notice the part of your mind that receives that and recalls it even a few seconds later. And begin to identify that as the very faculty of recollection, of bearing in mind an instruction.
watching the process by which an instruction turns into an intention to carry that out within yourself. And each of us will carry out that instruction in a completely unique way. And the very decision to act upon that instruction is a choice. It's very important to be aware of the degree to which every moment of our meditation practice is itself the flowering of a motivation, an intention, and an action of body, speech, and mind. So bearing this in mind, settle your body, speech, and mind as we've done before, one at a time, with care, with gentleness. And then notice how you can maintain all three at once. The posture of stillness, ease, and vigilance. The releasing of the breath into its natural rhythm. Letting the body breathe. gently silencing even the inner chatter of the mind by letting those words flow out silently upon the breath and letting them go. <laughs> Not following the trains of thought that beg for our attention. And then noticing the stillness of awareness, simple, clear, awake.
And now we turn to the topic of, of our meditation, which today is loving kindness. And we begin with loving kindness for ourselves. But this raises, for many of us, very deep questions. It's not so easy to simply generate the motivation out of loving kindness for myself. What if there are obstacles to that? What if there's something inside us that resists being kind to ourselves? very gently, patiently, look inside who is it inside that you wish to care for? What is it to care for me? so fundamental, so primordial in our experience. But how often do we examine it? And how much pain can come up around that very question? Who is here, the one inside, who is deserving of love, who is deserving of happiness, genuine happiness? If you come up blank, it's okay. Be at ease with that. But what if other feelings come up that are the opposite of that loving kindness? Harshness, criticism, even violence towards ourselves. Is there a part of us that can be so quiet that it simply lets those thoughts, images arise, but doesn't engage with them as real, just watches them?
And then ask yourself if you've ever been the recipient of genuine love. Maybe not perfectly unconditional love, but something close, something that gave you a taste of it. Does someone, does some relationship come to mind? What is or was the quality of receiving that love? What if that brings up more painful memories? What do we do then? Ask yourself, do you have some intuition, some faith that there is in the world, in the universe, in all reality, at least one being who is awakened? whose consciousness is of the nature of perfect love, unconditional love. Can you feel or taste or intuit that such a being exists? One who sees you now, who knows you now. Can you taste it in a way that's not just wishful thinking. If there is such a thing as bodhicitta, the aspiration for total enlightenment, if there is such a thing as a path, if there is such a thing as an end to mental affliction and a flowering of all sublime qualities, has anyone reached it? And if they have, then is it not obvious that they see each of us now and love us unconditionally? If it seems these words have dropped a bomb in your heart, it's okay. If they lead to consolation, that's okay too but we need to ask these questions. If there were such a being, such an awareness, perfectly refined, flowered, perfected awareness, What would that love be like? Can you imagine it? Just imagine it. Showering you with light, with gentleness, with compassion for your pain, and with a love that wishes you, each one of us, to find our genuine happiness. 
What does it feel like to be bathed in that kind of love? And then look deeper. Whether you believe such a being actually exists or not, what part of your mind is able to imagine it? Where does that capacity come from? we can imagine love, even when we can't quite feel it, then we have the capacity for it. If you are outside yourself looking upon yourself as another being, how would you want to love the person who's sitting here, the one you call you? Can you look upon yourself as lovable, regardless of what you've done, what your propensities are, what your failings are? Can you see a dimension of yourself that is worthy of unconditional love? Simply because we exist. And then let these questions go and turn to what may be easier. Think of someone whom you love naturally, spontaneously, maybe because of a relationship a whole lifetime, such as a parent, a brother or a sister. Or someone you love for other reasons, other kinds of relationships. You know, what is the purest love you experience right now in your own life? And think of that person sitting in front of you. You can visualize a little bit, just enough to let you know that that presence is with you. What does it feel like to look into this person's eyes? tenderly, to listen to them, whether they speak with joy or sadness, anxiety or hope. What does it feel like to just let your heart be open to this person who is lovable for you?
And then put a vision to a feeling you already have of wanting that person to have what they want, wishing them well, wanting their happiness for them, and it naturally brings you joy. Let that feeling take the shape, the form of a ray of light extending from your own heart, the depths of your own heart, to that person's heart. Imagine yourself sitting with that person and without saying anything at all, maybe they're talking, maybe you're talking, but silently, secretly, if you will, see that ray of light passing from your heart to the other person, giving them your love, your wish that they be happy. see how in the familiarity of such a relationship the very wishing is already benefiting that person you've seen it happen the way you attend to their eyes their words their body language what is it to pay attention with love Rest there, imagining the scene, but not adding a lot of thoughts to it, just resting. With your exhalation, you can very gently feel a flow of your energy pouring along that stream from your heart. And without forcing anything, when it feels appropriate on an inhalation, you can allow that flow to reverse itself. And you can feel that person's love for you. flowing back to your own heart, granting you support, strength, courage, hope.
And then let the image of the other person dissolve into light and come into your heart on that very ray of light. And return to the awareness of your whole body. Aware of the rhythm of the breath. and rest in the feeling of loving and being loved. How can you embody that? Let it be visceral, as though breathing through the pores of your skin, not just air, but unconditional loving kindness soaked in it, dwelling in it, embodying it, being it. Can you trust a stillness at the depths of your heart that is steadfast, that will never move or waver, that is the ultimate ground of all love. Rest there. sure we've all heard the truism, we can't give what we don't have. And it is so essential to the practice of the Four Immeasurables in particular that we explore this first step, which is self-directed. And I think sometimes for those who have been following a spiritual path for a very long time, maybe. Maybe we've always had an impulse to it since childhood, since teenage. And we want to be compassionate people. We want to be forgiving people. We want to be loving people. It becomes so natural to be outwardly directed. Uh, 
and almost to feel we're not allowed to have um, anything but good feelings towards others. And the question did come up, and I really appreciate it. It is important to be very honest with the mental afflictions that arise. It doesn't mean we follow them. It doesn't mean we caress and cajole or embrace them, as Alan said further. No, it doesn't mean that. But to truly eradicate, abandon certain kinds of mental afflictions, we have to actually know them very, very well so that we can recognize them on the spot and know why they are worthy of being abandoned. So the fortitude that I referred to yesterday, the fortitude of a spiritual path is the courage to be able to look in the face some of the most terrifying thoughts that we can have, and not as in fear for ourselves, but fear of how mentally afflicted our minds can be. Uh, the path to shamatha will reveal that very quickly and for a long time, because there are a lot of things that need to be cleansed. So there's a very delicate balance between learning to face one's mind unveiled, almost unprotected as it were, one feels very naked, but not feel that anything that comes up, therefore it's okay. Because not everything's okay. And in a longer retreat, we would be able to go into practices that are so specifically designed to make this distinction, specifically settling the mind in its natural state, where one sees the difference between the mere arising of a thought and what it is to involuntarily or voluntarily fuse with that thought, and then it turns into an intention, and then, of course, that's when a mental affliction becomes toxic and wildly dangerous if we identify with it and then furthermore decide to do something upon it. But the courage, even in mindfulness of breathing, because it doesn't stop those th thoughts from coming up, one's not directly paying attention to them as the object of recollection, but they're coming up anyway. And so one has to be able to have the awareness of what's coming up and letting it go. And it's coming up and letting it go. And some things that will come up are so powerful, we have to say, now I'm going to do a session just on looking at this. It's important, even if one has chosen mindfulness of breathing, for example, as one's primary shamatha practice, not to think that's the only kind of meditation we can do. Because fully balanced, rich, integrated path will have many different practices in it. And of necessity, mindfulness of breathing will bring up some of our deepest issues. And this is why it's important to have a spiritual guide, someone one trusts, someone one can speak to um, when problems come up, and as well as uh, access to a well-qualified psychologist if that's necessary as well. But when we decide, okay, I, this is a memory so big or a mental affliction so big, I need to just look at it. There's no way I can describe in the abstract all the perspectives from which one can look at a mental affliction. But I think the most important thing to say for now is 
in order to eradicate anger, for example, we need to know from the depths of our being why it won't help. Why, as long as anger is directed toward another person, it is objectifying an object, the, an, another pole of the directionality, this is what I'm saying, the, the vector of the anger, as long as it's attaching to something, it can only cause harm in the end. Not only because it damages us, you know, even if anger is never expressed, as long as it's inside us, it's disturbing us. That's what it means to be a mental affliction. And it can eat away at us. But if it furthermore turns into actions that are based in anger, we know from the history of our world that doesn't turn out well. Uh, actually, I'm realizing the very next line for after the meditation that we did yesterday under letter C, the Buddha's is quoted as saying, and this is from the Dhammapada, animosity is never quelled with animosity. Animosity is quelled only with the absence of animosity. This is an ancient truth. So I think we just have to see the twisted nature of anger, the, the energy of it itself. It's just painful. It hurts. But if we can let go of the way in which it globs onto a person or a situation as the thing that's making everything else bad, you know, that the, the thoughts of anger tend to say, it's that, it's, that's the problem. If we can recognize the diverse causes and conditions that can bring about even a single person's actions, start to see the well-roundedness of Oh, even that person is arising based on causes and conditions and culture and family and influences and people who hurt them. And let go the contracted quality. Then looking inside, there's an energy to anger which might be able to be transformed. And it's not anger anymore. So I, I hesitate even to use the word an energy to anger. Because by the time one lets go of grasping to an object, instantly the energy that's coming up isn't anger anymore. But it might be an inspiration to help. It might be an inspiration to act and try to change something. <coughs> but until we've let go of thinking there's just one thing wrong and it's that person? Our energy to try to change something will be poisoned because it's holding on in an ignorant way as though there's just one problem or just one constellation of problems and it's that fault. So, and this is very much what Alan was saying at the end of his, his talk on Friday night. Our impulse to change things in the world as long as it's poisoned by something that's out of whack within ourselves, it will just create more poison in the world. And I think we see that even in the most well-intentioned movements. 
as long as they can turn into violence or infighting among the group who's trying to do good. It happens in businesses, it happens in not-for-profits, it happens in M NGOs, it happens in protests, it happens in families. So much good intention can be set awry by the way that individuals are all globbing on to certain things as the objects of anger. And so just to recognize this is a mental affliction and therefore it is a poison, let me detoxify my mind of that poison and then I will know what intentions will be pure and how my desire to relieve the pain of others could be effective in a way that won't cause more problems. And sometimes that can be paralyzing for a while. And I won't deny that. It can feel paralyzing. Um, but when we have a practice of sitting still, then that paralysis itself is not a bad thing. It's a practice of stillness. It's a practice of healing inside that makes use of our very desire to be of help outside and trains it first, trains the instrument of good, of change. So these four immeasurables, as I said yesterday, I started with this vast picture, and I, I felt it was important to give us that scope. Otherwise, frankly, from a Buddhist perspective, they're not a Buddhist practice. If they're not aimed at ultimate liberation from all mental afflictions and their very possibility, their very seeds, if it's not aimed at enlightenment itself, then that's not fully an immeasurable, because there's a limit on it. If it's not aimed at all sentient beings, there's a limit on it. But as Alan said this morning, who are all, all sentient beings for us? They're the people we encounter. And so we actually can know quite well what the scope of sentient beings is for each one of us. Uh, and it may include all the sentient beings on this globe right now, because at least conceptually, we, we can encircle that, even if we haven't seen the billion, billion animals. We haven't seen the seven point something billion people. Uh, I've been in retreat a couple of years, so the numbers changed since I last checked. Uh, these are the sentient beings for us. And equanimity becomes so important because as long as we haven't cultivated this impartial attitude toward those near and those far, those who want to hurt us and those who want to help us, our loving kindness and our compassion will be stultified by the failure in our, in our impartiality. I think that should be quite obvious. If, if there's a boundary of, oh, well, I can't love you, or well, your pain looks bad, but maybe you kind of deserve it. <laughs> as long as, as we hit those boundaries, um, even our, love and, our loving kindness and compassion won't be complete, much less our impartiality. So there's a beautiful way in which uh, these four work with one another. And coming back to page one, which I, we weren't ready to address yesterday, 
Um, and some of this I really encourage you to simply read and sit with, probably for years, decades. Um, <laughs> because it's clear, the language is clear, but we have to find out what it means. So I will read all of this right now, and some of it, if it's new to you, it, it's too much to take in, but there's a first for everything. So just to understand the basic nature of each of the four, uh, and then very quickly memorizing them to see how they interact, I think is essential. So in the traditional Tibetan liturgy, uh, there are actually four steps, but we won't go through that now. The, the epitome of each of the four immeasurables in, is in the form of a prayer. It is an aspiration. It is a wish. And at this point, it's not even personally oriented as in, I need to do something about it. That's the personal responsibility I spoke about yesterday. But we don't get there right away. We start, well, we start with another step. I'll, I'll leave aside. But that step turns into the prayer. May all beings be endowed with happiness and its causes. This is the definitive nature of loving kindness in a Buddhist context, in the context of the Four Immeasurables. May all beings be free of suffering and its causes. This is compassion. And it, in English, we have to choose words. And the words loving kindness and compassion don't necessarily have the same history within the English language that these definitions do in the Buddhist traditions of Pali, Sanskrit, Tibetan, and so on. Uh, but the words work. We know how loving kindness has this giving quality to it, this tenderness, gentleness, the tending to a child. And the, the most natural impulse of a healthy mother-child relationship is the wanting to give happiness, wanting to give happiness and its causes. So that's the outward directedness of loving kindness for another. And that's why it becomes quite delicate when we think, what is it to experience loving kindness towards ourselves? And I leave that as the questions that we asked in meditation. But then, may all beings be free of suffering and its causes. This has a, in the practice of tonglen or, or uh, giving and taking, this is the taking part. This is the. I see something there which is causing pain to you. May you be free of it. May it peel off of you, be emitted from you, and you never have to experience it again, and not hurt anybody else either. So the compassion is, is not simply a feeling with. That would be empathy. It's not simply recognizing, oh, that's pain. I feel sorry for that pain. In this context, the word very specifically refers to an aspiration. It's cognitive, not merely emotional. It's an aspiration. May that person be free of suffering and its causes. And this becomes very complex once we look at what are the true causes of suffering. And that's further impetus, as it were, to look into the nature of reality and what are the causes of my suffering, what are the causes of others' suffering. And then in empathetic joy, May all beings never be parted from well-being, free of dissatisfaction. Uh, so empathetic joy at first refers to 
being able to rejoice with others. Uh, it's the direct antidote of envy, that which somehow feels displeasure because of someone else's success or joy. Empathetic joy sees there's enough to go around for everyone and, and is uplifted by others' joy and, in fact, wants others' joy and, furthermore, wants others' joy in an endless stream that will never um, be interrupted or end. And so then, in this sequence, the fourth is, may all beings dwell in impartiality, free of attachment and hostility for those near and far. And as I s indicated yesterday, the near implies those we feel close to, as in friends, relatives, uh, partners, those for whom we feel natural, intimate love. Uh, and those far implies those who want to hurt us. I th this was such a revelation to me when I, I don't remember exactly when I heard it first, but I realized I hadn't grown up making that distinction. In Buddhism in particular, enemies are not those we don't like. Otherwise, how could we feel loving kindness and compassion for our enemies? Enemies are those who want to hurt us. You see the distinction? We can love someone who wants to hurt us, but we can't love someone whom we don't like. Well, actually we can, but we can't, we can't um, uh, love someone whom we don't love. That's the point I'm trying to make. If you, if you define an enemy as someone we don't love, then how can you ever feel loving kindness for an enemy? But in the, the Gospels, too, when Christ says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, he's making exactly the same point. Those who persecute you don't have to be the object of your animosity. Those who persecute you, those whom you legitimately fear, can be the object of your loving kindness and compassion. Uh, And the classical, there's a very long teaching, which again, I can't go into today, but there's a long teaching on many different ways of getting around our habitual attraction to those whom we feel close to anyway, and our hostility toward those whom we, f we feel want to hurt us. Uh, and that has a lot to do with taking as given the infinite span of past and future lives. So the Buddhist arguments are based on, well, think about past lives and all the different relationships you had with these beings um, a million years ago, a thousand years ago, a hundred years ago. But if that is set in question for us, if that's a point of uncertainty for us, it won't be the most effective method for developing impartiality. And actually, it may be more urgent for us to develop impartiality than it is for us to gain certainty about the existence of past and future lives because we probably won't read shamatha, which gives us the tools to, to have direct evidence for past and future lives if we are plagued by attachment to those who are near and hostility towards those who are far. So we need other methods. And I feel that shamatha itself and the things it brings up can be such a powerful method. And really, if I, I give, if I offer you anything from my heart today, it's, it's this. 
When one is practicing shamatha a great deal, whether in retreat or not in retreat, as long as one has that space of withdrawal, a regularity of practice, ideally twice a day, just once a day usually isn't enough. Morning and night, morning and midday, it's important to continue to spread our practice out through our activities. But when we have a place of stillness, of solitude, of seclusion that we're cultivating every single day, never missing a day, there's a tenderness of heart that has to develop. And it has to develop towards ourselves because we won't survive with ourselves in that solitude. We haven't faced the violence or harm that we wish towards ourselves. And I'll dare to say that we all have a seed for that, even if we haven't experienced it manifestly yet. Just be quiet long enough. <laughs> And you'll taste the seed of all violence. And it's directed inward first. There's a dissatisfaction with just being. And actually, it may be the reason why we keep generating conceptual thoughts. I mean, at the very, very subtle level. Why does the mind have to keep thinking? Because it's not satisfied with silence. It's not satisfied with simply being still. And that dissatisfaction is a dislike. And who is closer to the, uh, that dislike but the one that is thought of as me? So to get so quiet that one can see how that dissatisfaction is driving all our impulses, all our desires, all our cravings, all our impulse toward hedonic pleasure, trying to get outside of the dissatisfaction at the core of our being. And shamatha forces us to be with it, to be quiet with it, to let it go over and over and over again on every single breath, if necessary. Sometimes they're a reprieve, and then you, then you taste what it's like not to have the dissatisfaction. But when we can see that, with the aspiration to develop loving kindness inside, and I don't even want to say directed towards ourselves, but just this ocean of loving kindness in which we can dwell that doesn't block the person who's here. And the more we can sit with this loving kindness towards those for whom it is natural, as we did in the meditation, and get used to really noticing what does that feel like? then it becomes unbearable not to feel it. It becomes unbearable when a person comes to mind for whom that feeling doesn't arise naturally. And the motivation can start to well up. I've got to do something about this. It's not, oh, somebody told me I shouldn't be angry. <laughs> if it's ever going to work, it has to be. Oh, I can't bear to feel anger. How can I care for this person until I don't feel anger anymore? How can I see the depths of this person until they're a tender child I'm holding in my hands and I'm saying, may you be free of the suffering that caused you to act in this way, toward me or toward someone else? 
And I think the day that we can see ourselves cradling in our spiritual arms, and I don't mean literally, but cradling in our spiritual arms, in the embrace of our heart, some of the beings in this world right now who are doing the most harm. And not in the sense of saying it's okay what you're doing. You know I don't mean that. It's cradling the child in that person whose growth is stunted. The child who was hurt and didn't have a way to get over it. The mental afflictions that are, are rising so fast and they don't have a method to overcome it. And so to be able to huh, embrace the mess that is manifest in another person and see through it to the purity of their subtle consciousness, their very subtle consciousness, which was never stained. And you see why I don't think we can do that until we're at peace with ourselves. It's, it's a give and take. It's a give and take because sometimes the more, we're, and I started this thought, oh, probably 20 minutes ago, the more we're outwardly directed, sometimes the one person we can ignore is ourselves. So then the very practice brings us back to realize, oh, I'm the one person I can't forgive. I'm the one person whose, whose failings are, are um, I have to find the right word, intolerable. I can tolerate everybody else's failings. I can embrace everybody, you know, the mind can think, oh, I've forgiven other people, I've forgiven other people, but this one, nah, -uh. you can't have any faults. That's, that's an imbalance that I think may be a natural part of the path. So the more we can sit with and be gentle with the failings in ourselves and see how that's also is a manifestation of self-grasping to an idealized version of ourselves that we want to be there, but never was there and never could be there, insofar as it's, we're grasping to it. But the more breakthroughs we make in that, the more breakthroughs we can make in the spontaneous tenderness we feel even toward the greatest sinners, the most harmful people in the world. You know, it may be easier sometimes to feel compassion for violent animals because we don't expect any better. We say, oh, it's instinct. You know, lions, tigers, crocodiles, they're violent creatures. But we don't say, oh, that's, that's evil. And we have a lot of good reasons for that, and philosophy and religion has had good reasons to say, well, human beings should know better. But when we can see the degree to which each one of us is under the power of mental afflictions, some more, some less, then we see that some people are not actually free to be human in the fullness of what it means to be human. And this is something I, I believe Alan will speak about more later. Um, we're not used to speaking of human as a, as a gradient. I mean, human is human. We're all human. And there are extremely important socio-political reasons that we've gotten to the place where we say we're all human equally. I'm not denying that for a second. 
and I know Alan isn't either. What we're speaking now is, is the degree to which we can exercise the freedom of the potentiality of what it is to be human. And insofar as outer or inner circumstances are preventing that, then we say with compassion to ourselves and to others, oh, I'm not able to be the fullness of what I could be right now. And I'm speaking just at the human level, much less the, the Buddha nature level. So it's this give and take of the more we can forgive ourselves and realize the gradient at that level of what it is to be human. And some days we can exercise our humanity more, and some days we're just sick, physically impeded, mentally impeded. And then we recognize that in others, and the compassion flows spontaneously, the loving kindness flows spontaneously. So then, uh, this will sound fast, but I hope I've said enough that it'll at least plant a seed again to, to spend decades meditating on the fine distinctions here, and Alan has taught on this a great deal, so if you're listening to his eight-week retreats from past years or present year, um, this topic comes up again and again. And it's from Buddhaghosa's Path of Purification, so this same Theravada master who compiled a thousand years of wisdom. Uh, and the term is near enemy, um, but Alan has translated it, uh, or spoken of it as false, false facsimile, as in something that Looks like it's the same, but isn't the same. Close, but no cigar. <laughs> uh, so the false facsimile of loving kindness is self-centered attachment. And in a word, that's, yeah, I love you because I love what you give me. I love you because I love the effect that you have on me. And this can be so subtle, so ingrained in really healthy relationships. I mean, they're otherwise healthy relationships. It's what we think of as normal parent-child relationships, lover-to-lover -lover relationships, teacher-to-student relationships, um, student-to-teacher, and so on. We do get things from people inadvertently. It's just the nature of relationships. People are, there's a give and take all the time, and sometimes that can be mutually very, very beneficial. But if our love, our wish for the other person to be happy is based on that give and take, it is not pure loving kindness. It is self-centered attachment. And this, again, is something we just need to look at ourselves and say, ooh, when's that showing up? And we know it's showing up when problems arise in a relationship. Every, I want to say, fissure or bump in a relationship, and this, of course, can show up day to day, hour to hour, uh, in close relationships, people we're seeing all the time. Every bump can be a little mirror. Oh, is this, a, is this attachment? Is, is my well-wishing for this person conditional? That's another way of saying it. Is there a conditiona conditionality, strings attached? And again, as long as we have a mind that's running with ignorance all the time, it's going to keep coming up. So we can't purify that all at once. We have to just accept, oh, there's attachment here. Um, but the more we can, through meditation, cultivate the loving kindness uh, 
and realize who is the person we love, who is the person we wish well, regardless of how they treat me. Then that's bringing the impartiality in, which is that if by some very deeply unfortunate tragic circumstances, this person whom I love and who loves me now turns out to want to hurt me. This is the, the changeability of friend and enemy that, that is part of the classic Buddhist meditation on this. If it turns out they want to hurt me, could my loving kindness toward them remain unchanged? Uh, and only we can know that. It's not dependent on the other person. So the false facsimile of loving kindness is self-centered attachment for like an enemy, it masquerades as a friend. It makes us think, ooh, I, I really love this person. I feel so much loving kindness for this person until they're harsh to me. Uh, and so the far enemy of this love, of true loving kindness is malice, ill will, um, which just by definition is the opposite of wishing them well. I don't need to say more about that. It's if, if, and if even the thought, oh, I, I can't even say these things anymore, but you know what I'll mean. If the opposite of may they have happiness as, as, and its causes arises in the mind, that's malice. Um, and it's the far enemy or the diametric opposite of loving kindness. The proximate cause, as in the thing that pushes us over into loving kindness, is seeing lovability in beings. And that's where our first meditation is just like, we actually need to sit with the experience of seeing lovability for a long time before we can generate it toward those whom we don't love. Uh, if we don't know what loving kindness feels like, it'll just be lip service to say, oh yeah, I love my enemies. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, it succeeds, so loving kindness succeeds when it makes malice subside. So it becomes the direct antidote, as in uh, it becomes unbearable for the thought of malice to even arise. It just, it's wiped it out. That's, an, that's the meaning of a, of a nyumbo or an antidote in, in Tibetan. Um, and it fails, loving kindness uh, fails when it produces self-centered attachment. So this is, this is like the, the um, quality control check on how, how is my practice of loving kindness doing. I'll go through the rest of them. They're, they're priceless. So for compassion, which is the desire that beings be free of suffering and its causes, the near enemy of compassion is despair. I think we all need to hear this on a daily or weekly basis. Listening to the, the news and losing hope is not compassion. It may be empathy. It may just be sadness. It may be, oh, I'm glad I'm not in that situation, which isn't any of them. Um, but compassion, as I said earlier, is cognitive. It is a decision. It is an intention, a desire. May all beings be free of suffering and its causes. And it leads very, very naturally, if one meditates on it enough, to the intention, I have to do something about it. I'm going, by whatever means necessary, to remove that suffering. And despair is hopelessness. Despair is thinking there's no, nothing, no solution. And 
Really, this is why all the teachings on the nature of reality, in Buddhism in particular, any genuine, full spiritual um, path, will provide the reasons for our hope because reality is not inherently the way it appears, and there is, and then there is the possibility to the end of suffering. Mental afflictions can be overcome. All these, these truths which are taught give us the reasons for hope. And uh, so again, this is one of those um, things to which we must become very sensitive, especially in meditation, because maras can take the form of there's no hope. This is never going to change. But the never going to change is grasping to things as permanent, as if it's always this way. And one of the most basic teachings of Buddhism is conditioned phenomena are impermanent. And all mental afflictions are conditioned phenomena. All evil actions are condi conditioned phenomena. All suffering is a conditioned phenomena. So it will change. And so there's always hope in cultivating the antidote causes. But when one has to study be able to see that, to be able to believe that, and then to be able to, uh, to so inculcate it with, with, within one's mind that becomes one's way of viewing the world. Cruelty is the far enemy of compassion. Um, again, it's difficult to find English words that make the distinction, because once you get to the opposite of loving kindness and the opposite of compassion, it's hard to make the distinction, a little bit for me, what would it be to wish the opposite of someone's happiness as opposed to wishing the opposite of their freedom from suffering? It's, it's a little dicey, but let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you, don't, if, you, if, if you can just eradicate malice and cruelty, why do we need to know the difference? Um, <laughs> and if anyone knows me, they know I don't usually say that. Uh, <laughs> The proximate cause of compa compassion is to see the helplessness in those overwhelmed by suffering. Yeah. yeah. This is what I meant about seeing the child. And those who are creating the causes for suffering are every bit as helpless as those who are receiving the results of the causes of suffering. One looks perhaps more like the victim to us. It's easy to feel compassion for those who are innocent now. But in the great scope of things, there were always causes for suffering. And those who are creating the causes for suffering now may look like innocent victims a long time from now. And I mean as in past and future lives across many lifetimes. And the heart-rending, excruciating compassion that we can feel for those who are experiencing the results of cruelty done in a past life. We can only imagine the ramifications of some of the deeds we know in history. And we can only imagine the exponential growth of karmic actions and its results. And we 
have some inkling of the way that when a human mind in particular does cease to exist as that individual human in the death process, but the results of karma go on, then anyone who's suffering the results of the karma of past lives almost, I won't say by definition, but by the nature of things, doesn't know the causes that created results that awful. And so if we can think about the causes and results of suffering at that kind of a scope, again, for some of us, that may not be possible now. But if we can even try to imagine it, where the causes for suffering are so deep and so long-term, the depth of compassion that arises for the evil people of the past, and I'll limit it just to that for now, if we can transfer that kind of compassion onto those whom we're seeing creating evil deeds now, then we can start to equalize the compassion we feel for those who are innocent now and suffering, and those who are not innocent now and don't seem to be suffering. You see, it's, it's a complex idea, but it's important to be able to see, oh, which is worse? Which is worse? So the cause, the proximate cause of compassion is to see the helplessness in those overwhelmed by suffering with the possibility of alleviating that suffering. Again, the hope has to be there. And we need to delve deeply into the nature of reality, asking the questions, just being insatiable in our longing to know how reality functions uh, in order to see the possibility of alleviating that suffering. And compassion succeeds when it makes cruelty subside. The possibility of cruelty just doesn't even arise in our minds anymore. And it fails when it produces despair, which is its near enemy. Empathetic joy. Its near enemy is hedonism. And this specifically, not in the subtle sense of, uh, uh, so there are very subtle forms of hedonic stimulus, there's nothing wrong with those. Here, it means it in the, in the more coarse sense of being carried away by attraction to the objects of the senses, the good things of the desire realm, as it's called. Um, which basically, I can think of this because it's so closely related to, to the imbalances within a practice of shamatha. Um, empathetic joy, it makes one bubbly. If one's rejoicing in, in the good deeds and the genuine happiness of others, and it lifts one's spirits, it gets bubbly. And that's good. <laughs> but the bubbly, just like a mind that's a little too energized in meditation, turns to agitation, turns to excitation. And in various, you know, the full teachings on shamatha, which there has not been the time to cover this in this weekend, but this is the taster for a much longer uh, retreat. Excitation, the primary form of it, is attraction to objects of the senses. It's 
the, the mind being carried out by its desire. Smells come in, Ooh, what's for lunch? Um, sounds come in, whether I, I want to go out and see what those people are talking about or I wish they'd stop. Both are a, an outward directedness of, of the attention, the scattering of the attention. Um, more subtlety there I won't go into now. But it's just interesting to watch. Oh, the bubbliness of empathetic joy can turn into, hey, this is fun. Samsara isn't so bad after all. Uh, so tempered. The empathetic joy has to be tempered so that it's rejoicing in the genuine cause. It's, it's rejoicing in the genuine happiness of others and of ourselves and not getting caught away, caught up in the hedonic happiness. Uh, which isn't going to last because the whole point of empathetic joy is that it wants lasting happiness from which beings will never be separated. Its far enemy of empathetic joy is envy and cynicism. This should be pretty obvious. As I said, just the very definition of rejoicing in others shows us that it's the, the opposite of, of envy. Cynicism in that sense of um, ah, human beings aren't so great after all being fed up with things. And joy, joy counters the despair, which is the uh, false facsimile of compassion. And we'll get to that very shortly. Uh, and so uh, again, the last one is always a, a mirror of, of the first. Empathetic joy fails when it produces hedonism. Uh, oh, I, I skipped. Um, empathetic joy, the proximate cause is seeing other beings success. And it can be triggered by seeing their success, success in worldly or, or impermanent ways. It's not that that's off limits for authentic empathetic joy. It's just that if empathetic joy gets all caught up in that, then it just wants more of that as opposed to the genuine happiness and its causes. Um, so it succeeds when envy and cynicism subside and fails when it produces hedonism. Impartiality, its near enemy is aloof indifference. This one also is, uh, these near enemies are so easy to fall into. That's why it's just such an incredibly valuable teaching. Its near enemy is this aloof indifference. And that's why um, Alan is, is choosing, and I agree with him, impartiality over equanimity now. Um, because equanimity, even though if we explain it properly, could be the right term. And the Tibetan term, um, definitely has the word equal in it. So it's nice to use equanimity. But insofar as equanimity, oh gosh, and I remember, never mind. I remember having a conversation about this years ago, and it kind of crystallized it for myself. Uh, when someone had challenged me on, well, is that just kind of the same neutral feeling towards everybody? No, it is not a neutral feeling. Um, neutral would turn into indifference which can very easily turn into, well, everybody's the same, so who cares anyway? <laughs> and then, of course, we have to apply that to ourselves, too. So that we drop into despair and cynicism and all the rest of them. So uh, you see how this slippery slope, we can fall off really easily. Um, impartiality. There's the line from the Acts of the Apostles when, uh, in one of Peter's sermons, soon after the ascension of Christ, he said, 
we know that God shows no partiality. He's saying God is impartial. And this is also a, a, a term that's applied to pristine awareness oftentimes in Dzogchen texts. Chokrimeva, impartial. And there's a real sense of directionality here. Of, we have the word partial, which means partition, part, part of the directionality of time and space. Impartial means everywhere, all at once. Every living being, all at once. Uh, if we understand the height of genuine loving kindness and compassion. And that's why we start with people who are close to us, for whom those feelings are natural. If we could cultivate that genuine, unconditional love toward one person, we've set our standard. We've set our bar. And the bar is very high. It's why it's good to realistically start small, realistically start concrete. And I feel this kind of unconditional love for you. And then raise everybody to that bar. So it, aloof indifference is everybody drops to neutral or worse. Impartiality is everybody raises to the highest gold standard of a relationship with another living being. So attachment and aversion We've, had, we've talked about the self-centered attachment. Aversion hostility is, uh, is this translating the same word, right? Yeah. Um, so hostility, aversion, wanting to push away, the disliking. Um, but disliking, not in the sense of disliking actions, disliking the person. Uh, that's these are the two far enemies of impartiality. So it's both at once. If one's using the self-centered attachment or one's having thoughts of cruelty or malice, either one is the far enemy of impartiality. Its proximate cause is seeing the responsibility for one's deeds, karma. This is very important. And it's, it's one's own and others' deeds. So this is why I had to start to speak across lifetimes, starting to understand the nature of karma and its effects. It is the great equalizer. <coughs> Again, not in the sense of low level, but in the sense of truly we are all the same. Insofar as we are all subject to the forces of ignorance and the forces of mental affliction and the forces of past karma and present karma that's turning into future results. Uh, in Tibetan one can say one's deeds without it pointing as me or other. So understand that one as, did I just drop? Yes. Battery? Okay. Thank you. If I keep speaking like this, you can hear me? Won't take the okay. Be yeah, okay, I'll pause. Settle your body, speech, and mind in their natural state. <laughs> and you can do that standing too. It's very useful too be able to relax that deeply while standing.
Thank you. No problem. We needed a rest. <laughs> Thank you. You're live. And we will stop very, very soon, actually. Uh, so impartiality, the proximate cause is seeing how karma works, essentially, and the way in which everyone is subject to the same forces, and if we can see through to that which is the same in everyone, there are a lot of things that are the same in everyone, our ultimate ground is the same. The nature, if not the individuality, of our subtle stream, stream of consciousness, the subtle continuum of mental consciousness, it's of the same nature in everyone. If we can see the forces of ignorance, the forces of mental affliction, the things that are hitting us are the same. The individuality of trajectories of lives are infinitely uh, diverse and unique. But understanding processes, understanding interactions, frees us from the globbing on of anger that I spoke about at the beginning. The more we understand, the more difficult it is to maintain a state of anger. It just dies. Uh, impartiality succeeds when attachment and, and aversion subside and fails when it produces that aloof indifference. These little paragraphs are very easy to read, very difficult to experience. And so I beg you, I, I, I encourage you, I supplicate you to spend a lot of time with these, meditating on them. Uh, and just before we break, I, I want to go through these last four. Um, the interactions should be obvious now, but we need to memorize them. To remedy the false facsimile of loving kindness that is self-centered attachment, we cultivate impartiality. So here you'll start to see that the, each of the, the immeasurables works to correct the imbalances on the other on others. Uh, so that's why I couldn't just speak about one of them. They, they're a kaleidoscope matrix. So to remedy self-centered attachment, cultivate impartiality. And that is releasing the attachment that one feels for those to whom one is close. And so recognizing this person could be my enemy in five years or next lifetime. Can I still feel loving kindness towards them? And then the things that our close friends do to us won't hurt so much because we're not thinking they're something better than they are. We're just seeing, oh, yeah, everybody's subject to the same things. To remedy aloof indifference, cultivate compassion. So when that equalizer starts to get too neutral, uh, and sometimes if we're really, really working on solitary practice, withdrawing can become too easy to stop caring. Uh, if one's practicing well, that won't happen. If one's really watching one's motivation every single session, then that, that can't happen. On the contrary, the nature of the practice is just to open our heart more and more and more. Um, but if too many things are going on in one's life and, and the meditation practice feels like a withdrawal, then that's when the demon of indifference can start to set in. And so that's when just looking 
at the pain around us. We'll just stop it really fast. Because how can one be indifferent if one is, is seeing causes, uh, suffering and its causes and letting one's eyes be open, letting one's heart be open? Um, it spurs us to care. To remedy despair, cultivate empathetic joy. So literally, if we're just getting too down and our compassion is turning into despair, that's when we have to remember the good things. Remember the good things that people are doing. It's wonderful to this practice of rejoicing, which is part of basic um, Tibetan Buddhist liturgies every single day, sometimes many sessions a day, to just recall the goodness of others. Around the world, even right now, how many people are gathering like this to talk about sacred things, to think about sacred things, to, to cultivate practice. We're not the only ones. And it just, the, good, the rejoicing in good news lifts us from a society which focuses so single-pointedly on the negative, frankly. The negative and the hedonic. Uh, so empathetic joy can lift us from that in an instant. To remedy hedonism, cultivate loving-kindness. Uh, so when it's bubbling too much, this doesn't mean more self-centered attachment. This means the genuine loving-kindness. And what I sense here is it calls us back to genuine happiness. If, if Even, again, in a very healthy, close relationship, it's fun to do hedonic things together whether parent, child, friend, friend, and so on, the world draws us out, and that can be joyful. But when we recall, well, what is my genuine loving kindness for this person? How could I benefit them in the highest way? It, it softens, it doesn't dampen, but it just softens the, the excess, the excess energy to the empathetic joy that turned into hedonism and brings it back both to authentic empathetic joy and you've cultivated loving kindness in the meantime. So we need to break there. Uh, and of course, our next meditation, I just want to point this out, if there were time, which there won't be, our next meditation would be starting where we just did and bringing to mind an enemy, someone who's really hurt us. And you can read all the, that's here in the notes, really beautiful things, and I thank Alan for these notes. These are not my notes. Um, the, the details there of how to counter resentment and so on, it should be obvious. It's up to us to put it into practice. And there uh, are so many different ways to visualize. I didn't feel like that was actually the most important thing to talk about today because those teachings are, are um, available. And again, Alan's book, which I've, I've mentioned here, the, 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 on the four measurables, practices to open the heart. Um, we'll have full explanation of, of these and the ways to meditate on them. But what I think can be so difficult sometimes is when the visualization gets flat and saying the words gets flat. That's a great danger. And so some of these gnarly things are what I wanted to focus on today. Uh, so we will return at 
five past four, um, right? 15, 15 minutes, or are we leaving more time for? Twenty past yeah. So I mean, everyone comes exactly. So we will return at ten past four, um, but I think something else might be happening in the course of that twenty minutes, which I mean, will tell you about. Um, but we'll try to address any remaining questions. But I hope you've been listening for answers to your questions. <laughs>